turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Excuse me for a moment. Ephesians chapter 4, as I mentioned last week, Paul's been going through the application of the truths that he spoke about earlier. And we come to verse 28, and there he says, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. We're good? All right. Verse 28 of chapter 4. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray now you bless us. Open this word, your word, here and other passages we'll be looking at uh, to our hearts and minds. Write it in our thoughts, Lord, so that we wouldn't be forgetful hearers, but become effectual doers. And we pray you bless us. And we thank you again, Father. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. One verse, verse 28. It's an exposition of the Eighth Commandment, actually. Thou shalt not steal. And so Paul writes in, he says, the one who steals, literally the one who is a thief, the one who is stealing, puts it in the present tense. Uh, so it's rather interesting. He, he has good thoughts toward the Ephesians, but he uh, also knows that because they come from Gentile backgrounds and they live in a pretty big prosperous city that some of them, maybe some of the younger people, maybe some of the older ones, perhaps had an um, indifferent attitude toward, you know, slightly stealing things, you know, picking up a couple of apples when you walk through the market, things like that. Sometimes the merchants don't care. Sometimes they can go broke from people doing stuff like that. Uh, and some people just have kind of a, you know, laissez-faire attitude about, Oh, it's okay if we do this. Don't worry about it. It'll be all right. Uh, you know, they can surely spare it. That's, you know, socialism and communism is based upon the idea of stealing officially from people and then giving it to others or keeping it for themselves. So it was interesting that where you see uh, Marxism or socialism put into place or attempts to put it into place, it's always funny how it's always for the, it's for the workers and they, it's always for the poor. And yet the people that are the, at the head of the heap like an animal farm, uh, they seem to be the ones that live in the big houses, drive the limousines, and have all the money and influence, etc. Because uh, that's the way Marxism works. The people at the top are the ones that get rich. Well, Paul here is talking about stealing, and he's pretty specific um, in just simply saying that he who stole, okay, or the one who is stealing, it's a present participle. So rather simple principle. He who stole, let him no longer steal. So he says, stop doing it. And it's interesting because here we have a simple command. Thou shalt not steal. It's an exposition of the eighth commandment. But we see that there's some interesting things about the law of God. Where you have a positive command given, like uh, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land that the Lord your God has given to you. There is implied in that promise also a threat. Because the promise is, honor your father and your mother. This is true of all the commandments, whether they're positive or negative. Positive meaning do something. Negative meaning where God says don't do something. When you have a positive command, the negative of that is implied. As the Westminster 
uh, larger catechism says in question 99, section four, uh, when it's, by the way, question 99 in the larger catechism is a really good exposition on how to interpret God's law. It's very, very helpful. And they say this in section four, that uh, as were a duty, as where a duty is commanded, the contrary sin is forbidden, clearly, if you're to honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land. Um, if you don't do that, your days are not going to be long upon the land, is the idea. So they're saying that uh, where a duty is commanded, the contrary sin is forbidden, and where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. So where a promise is annexed, the contrary threatening is included. And where threatening is annexed, the contrary promise is included. And it says, well, where's that in the Bible? Well, in section four of the 99th question of the larger catechism, the proof text, guess what they cite as an example of showing that where you have a negative command, the positive is implied. They cite Ephesians 4.28. Because here we see Paul gives the command. He says, let him that stole steal no more. You know, it's his application of the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal. But then he shows what the positive aspect is. Some would say, well, I don't steal anymore. He says, very good. Here's what you need to do. Rather, let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. So we see the command is don't steal, but there's so much implied in it. You know, David said in regard to God's law, he said, thy commandment is exceedingly broad, meaning that it covers a whole lot of stuff. The exposition of the Eighth Commandment, again, in the Catechism, and I realize, you know, it's a little dated with the languages, so sometimes it's hard to follow along. But in questions 141 and 142 of the Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, our brothers who lived a few centuries ago, they did a pretty good thing in setting this forth for us and explaining, here's how they understood it. And they provided proof text so we can take a look at it. But in, I'm, so I'd like to read it. It's not too terribly long, but I just want you to see how God's law definitely applies to a lot of stuff, at least how the Puritans understood it. And we would do well to do the same, because by the law is the knowledge of sin. The reason why we preach the laws is for that reason. The laws, by the law is the knowledge of sin, and also God promises in Jeremiah 31 and in the New Testament that he's writing his law, that's the word he uses, in the hearts and minds of his people. So for us, the law has stamped across it, paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. So the law can't hurt you, because otherwise it's pretty scary. If you remember in Pilgrim's Progress, when he, when uh, Mr. Worldly Wiseman told him to go by the way of, of uh, carnal security, whatever, when he got there, the, the mountain, which later he was told that's Mount Sinai, where the law was, he was ready to fall on his head, uh, because he thought, well, I'll just, you know, I'll be a good, good man, and that should be enough. And the evangelist caught up to him and said, that's a false way; it leads to hell. Um, so we're not trying to be saved by keeping the law, but the Lord causes us to be law keepers when we're saved, and particularly, look, here's a good example. Don't steal. Why? Well, the law says, you know, thou shalt not steal. And so you shouldn't. There's other things to be doing with your life. And it's not just enough to say, well, I don't steal anymore. So here, here's what they say. Question 140 is simple. Which is the eighth commandment? This is from the Westminster Larger Catechism. Uh, which is the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment is thou shalt not steal. Then they ask, they're going to ask in this question, what are the duties that are commanded or required? And then the next question is, what sins are forbidden? Well, how, you know, how exactly 
What is the application of this? Now, our Lord did this in the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, before I read, uh, in regard to the sin of adultery. You know, he said, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whoever looks on a woman to lust after her in his heart, he's committed adultery. Uh, and so we see like, well, whoa, wait a minute. So it's not just the actual physical act of committing adultery. Anything that leads to that, you know, a lustful look, yeah, obviously wicked thoughts in the heart, all those types of things. In Jesus' name that, he said, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, murders, blasphemies. So we see that you know, these the commandments speak to, to what we call heart sins long before they speak to actual sins. All right. Having said that, so I just want to show you that the, the Bible does indeed lead us in this direction. The commandment has a lot to say. Uh, this is why Christ died for us, and this is what the Lord is working in our lives, so that we be covenant keepers. What are the duties required in the Eighth Commandment? Question 141. The duties required in the Eighth Commandment are truth, faithfulness, and justice in contracts and commerce between man and man, rendering to everyone his due restitution of goods unlawfully detained from the right owners thereof giving and lending freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others, moderation of our judgments, wills, and affections concerning worldly goods, a provident care and study to get, keep, use, and dispose these things which are necessary and convenient for the sustentation of our nature and suitable to our condition, a lawful calling and diligence in it, frugality, avoiding unnecessary lawsuits and sureteeship or other like entanglements, and an endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward estate of others as well as our own. So those are the duties that they understood. So you can see again, you know, thy commandment is exceeding broad. Question 142 then asks, what are the sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? Obviously, theft is clear, huh? Well, here's what they say. Answer, the sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, are theft, robbery, man-stealing, and receiving anything that is stolen, fraudulent dealing, false weights and measures, you know, the thumb on the meat scale at the butcher shop idea, you know, false weights and measures, removing landmarks, injustice and unfaithfulness in contracts between man and man, or in matters of trust, oppression, extortion, usury, bribery, vexatious lawsuits, unjust enclosures and depopulations, the idea of landed and throwing the people that have been on it for centuries off of it, engrossing commodities to enhance the price unlawful callings, and all other unjust or sinful ways of taking or withholding from our neighbor what belongs to him, or of enriching ourselves, covetousness, inordinate prizing and affecting worldly goods, distrustful and distracting cares and studies in getting, keeping, and using them, envying at the prosperity of others, as likewise idleness, prodigality, wasteful gaming, and all other ways whereby we do unduly prejudice our own outward state and, def uh, and defrauding ourselves of the due use and comfort of that estate which God hath given to us. So like I say, it's quite a bit, you know, they understood that the, the commandment wasn't just don't steal stuff. It has a whole lot more to do with that. And we see they talk about oppression. They talk about taking people's property. We've seen that, you know, all happen in our nation's history. And we've seen 
uh, oppression happened you know, on multiple levels, you know, the whole slavery issue and all of that, they, they forbade. That's back in 1647. Every Presbyterian in the United States knew that man stealing was uh, considered to be a violation of the Eighth Commandment. That's how people got slaves originally. Uh, not just man stealing, but it, said, it talks about receiving stolen property. There's not a was not a slave in the United States. It wasn't at some point uh, descended anyway of someone who if they considered him property. It was definitely stolen property, but it was stolen from the people themselves. All right. So what do we do about this? Well, James talks about this in the New Testament. He again makes application in uh, the book of James at chapter five. If you have your Bible. We'll do a little Bible study today as we're trying to make some application of these truths. Chapter 5 at verse 1, James rebukes uh, the rich men. There's nothing wrong with being rich if God's prospered you, but there's definitely a problem being rich and wicked, okay? So he says, uh, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. And then know what he says in verse, verse, verse 4. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. He goes on, but you see the idea of defrauding your workers. I remember growing up in the Central Valley, uh, that one of the, the problems you'd hear about something once in a while, and my father was a farmer, but he never, never did anything like this. And I thank God for that, his good example. But there were farmers that would hire illegal aliens. And then when the season was over, when it came time to pay them, they would short them. This is back before, you know, our country was protecting you know, illegal aliens. And to a certain point, they need to be protected from people that exploit them. But some of the farmers would just say, you know, oh, I promised you $1,000. Here's $500 or $200. What are you going to do? They couldn't go to the police, so they defrauded them. It was horrible. Uh, and, and there were things like that that, are, that happened. You know, in the Bible, did you know that there's no, there's no provision for prisons in Scripture? Did you know that? The only time there was a, someone held in ward was to figure out or find out what God's will is for the crime they committed. Crimes of... Uh, murder and rape, blasphemy, and uh, man-stealing and things like that. Those were capital crimes. And if a person was convicted of those, they didn't have to lock them up for, for decades. They were dealt with, but it had to be upon witnesses, and uh, it had to be follow, following God's law. But crimes of theft, if a person stole, they were required to work and to pay. And if they couldn't uh, pay, they were then to be sold into slavery in it for a temporary time, not permanent slavery, so that they could pay back sometimes fourfold uh, the people that they had robbed. And so uh, there was no provision. Now, if they, if they didn't obey what the judges told them, that was a capital crime. So if a judge said you're to work and pay back the people you stole from fourfold, if they did that, the guy that was a thief learned how to work. He learned the value of money because part of his pay every week had to go to the people that he stole from. And so when he got done, he perhaps had learned to trade. And you notice what Paul says here in Ephesians was that him that stole steal no more. But what? But rather let him labor with his hands, working with his hands what is good. And so the idea is that a person should have a trade. Our catechism mentioned that. They should have a trade and they should work at it. Under Islam or Islamic law, actually, 
Uh, if a person steals, if you're familiar with it, you know what the, the punishment is. They cut off their hand. First offense. Second offense, they cut off their other hand. You couldn't get a more hellish doctrine because you take a person that is a thief and you render him now incapable of working. Although my, I remember my Hebrew professor, Dr. Fisher, told us when he was uh, in Ethiopia and certain parts of the world, other not they, they weren't Islamic, but in areas where Islamic law was being followed, he said he saw in the marketplace men that only had two stubs for where their hands had been stealing wallets out of people's pockets. They, they, they still had enough dexterity to do that. He said their hearts hadn't been changed, but they, they'd lost both of their hands because they were sloppy thieves and had gotten caught. God's word doesn't teach maiming. It teaches that men are to be taught to work. They are to work. So we see that this, this sin of theft is forbidden. Men are to work. That's what he says, that him who stole steal no longer. That's to be a break with sin. I was talking to someone this week, and I said, you know, true faith is always accompanied with repentance. When someone says they believe, but they're still involved in sin, and they're still doing things that they know are wrong, and they have no intention of changing, they have maybe a historical faith. They have a temporary faith. But whatever they have, they don't have saving faith person who hasn't repented of their sin is still involved in doing wicked things is on their way to hell. The Bible says we are to repent and believe. And where God gives saving faith, he gives true repentance. And so we are to no longer steal, if that's been our background, but we are now to labor. He says, on the contrary, rather, let him labor working that you know, the good thing, not just work, but find something good to do. You know, honest labor. There's no such thing as honest labor that's dishonorable. You know, I, I remember a fellow, he, there was a job, his family was hungry, but there was a job. He didn't like it because he thought he'd have to humble himself to do what was required. It wasn't a bad thing. He just, they, you know, they wanted him to hold a sign out on the sidewalk. Uh, and he wouldn't do that. He said he looked like a fool out there. He wasn't about to do that. Um, it was like, you'll get paid, man, you know. And but um, so his family suffered as a result of that. So we need to realize, you know, Honest labor sometimes doesn't pay a whole lot, but honest labor pays very well in in uh, in total because we have a clear conscience. And here Paul says not just as a person to labor, he is to labor with the view to helping others. Now that's interesting, you know, and it's, it's because a thief is someone who covets. If there was no covetousness, there'd be no theft. You know, the Tenth Commandment says, thou shalt not covet. And so it requires a person to want to steal someone else's belongings in order for them to actually act on that and think, well, I have more right to what they possess than they do when the person that you're coveting from has acquired their property or whatever it is they have that the thief wants to steal legitimately through labor. And so there you have people that covet and then they act on their covetousness and theft is a damning sin. By that, I mean, if that's, the mark of a person's life, then something's wrong. And the Bible says in first Corinthians six, nine through or seven through nine, that there are certain sins that are indicative that a person's not really been converted and defrauding and theft is clearly in that category. So Zacchaeus is a good example of someone that repented in Luke 19. 
at verse 8, we read, But Zacchaeus stood, this is after Jesus. Remember, Zacchaeus was, a, like the song says, was a wee little man. Okay, the Lord came up. And I love it because in the original, when it says, the English says the Lord looked at him. The Greek actually is the Lord looked into him. Okay, it's not just blepo, it's imblepo. Okay, the Lord looked into him. Uh, it's basically saw his heart. It could also be understood that he really, you know, gave him a good look. And he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down for today I dine at your house. Something happened. One look from Jesus changes us. And we're told that night Zacchaeus made a great feast, invited all of his, his tax collector friends and other people, and Jesus was there. And the Pharisees were grumbling because they said, oh, look, you just Jesus is going and eating with, you know, tax collectors and sinners, you know, etc. Uh, they didn't see themselves in, in any of those categories. But we read of Zacchaeus, it says, Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. So Zacchaeus had probably already begun to get in touch with people that were on his conscience, that he knew that he had falsely accused him. You know, tax collectors in the Roman Empire were people that contracted with the Roman government to collect the taxes that the Roman government wanted. But a tax collector could come into your house and say, uh, he recognized, okay, you owe five shekels. He could come in and say, your taxes are going to be 500 shekels because of someone who was rich. And he had to turn five of those shekels over to the Roman government and the rest he put into his pocket. And that's why it was a despised profession. And if you read about that, uh, but Christ called many of them or a number of them to serve him. One, if you like the gospel according to St. Matthew, you're reading a book written by a former tax collector, okay? Zacchaeus had the same profession, and they were very much despised among the Hebrews. But here we see Zacchaeus' heart had been changed, and he recognized that it wasn't wrong for him to collect taxes, but it was wrong for him to uh, use uh, his position to defraud others uh, and to extort from them more than was due. So he says the half... So I'm, I'm giving half of my, my goods to the poor. In other words, he, he had, we hope, earned up some of his money legitimately and honestly. Uh, nothing wrong, you know, tax collectors were expected. They were honest ones, and they could, they could hold back some for themselves, and they were expected to make a living doing it. Others were very greedy. Zacchaeus realized, I've got all kinds of wealth. I don't need to hold on to all this. So he gave half of it to the poor, and then he says, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. So he had to go back to people and say, you know, I, uh, I took 100 shekels from you that I didn't really have right to. So I'm giving you back 400 shekels for the damage I caused. Um, you can be sure there were some people who, when, they, when he first walked up to their house or business, and they saw him coming, they were like, oh, great. You know, and when he left, they were like, what on earth has happened to Zacchaeus? You know, he was a changed man because of Jesus. He was a thief that no longer stole. Okay. Uh, and Jesus said unto him, uh, this day is salvation come to this, this house, for as much as he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You know, if indeed everything belongs to God, if we think about it, the earth is Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything you own, you have on lease, you might say, or loan from God. It's his. And the Bible does say, Paul wrote and said, God gives us all things richly to enjoy. But we need to realize everything we had, including our own physical bodies, belong to God. 
and we will give an account on how we've used things. But if we think about it, if we say, well, I want to avoid this sin of theft, well, what do you owe to God? You know, and if you think like, well, is that the way to put it? Well, we just prayed the Lord's Prayer, and how did Jesus teach us to ask for forgiveness? Forgive us our what? Debts, as we forgive our debtors. Now, somebody say, well, we're asking God to help us, you know, kind of get through a, some form of spiritual bankruptcy or something. Well, we are already bankrupt before God. And when Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts, he's talking about the debt we owe to God. If you go over and read in Luke chapter 11, when Jesus taught uh, a similar prayer there, he says, he taught them to say, and forgive us our sins, as we also forgive all those who are indebted to us. So it's clear we're being taught to pray for the forgiveness of sins. But the idea is the debt. Why? Because we owe God a debt. Because his is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And we owe to him everything that we have and everything that we are. You know, when you wake up in the morning, you might have plans, but you need to start thinking, I need to do this too. We all do. Okay, I belong to God. What would the Lord have me do today? Okay, how would the Lord have me serve him today? You know, on my job or in the home or my study? What am I to do? So we ought not to rob him. Malachi rebuked the people because in Malachi chapter three, you know, the problem in Israel is that in, in, uh, from Abraham on, the idea of the tithe was there. And God rebuked Israel at one point in verse seven. Uh, and he says in, in uh, Malachi 3, 7, um, well, actually, we'll start at six. He says, for I am the Lord. I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, those sons of Jacob. In other words, God's faithful covenantally. Yet from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, in what way shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing, that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. So Israel was called to stop their thieving. And sometimes, you know, people say, well, yeah, but, you know, we're in the New Testament period. And this whole thing of tithing, that's just legalism and, and law. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 23. Let's see what Jesus had to say. You know, Paul... When he wrote to Timothy, he said, if any man does not consent to the sound words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, he said the same is proud and basically doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, the Gospels are normative revelation for us. Now, we recognize some of the things do pertain to the period of time prior to Christ's death, when the Mosaic administration was still uh, in force. The veil had yet to be torn in two, so there are ceremonial laws. But our Lord Jesus Christ's attitude toward tithing, seeing we're on that subject, and if we are guilty of thieving from God, we do need to uh, stop doing it, at least consider what might be might be theft. Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 23, when he's rebuking the Pharisees, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, know what he says here very carefully. He accuses them of being hypocrites. A hypocrite is a phony. 
play actor. The word hypocrite in Greek wasn't a negative word. If you were a thespian, a play actor, you were a hypocrite. Okay, it just meant that you performed. And that's but Jesus applies it to people that perform and they're not really what they're pretending to be is the idea. But he says, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. Now look that. So what he's saying here is that, and it's documented and understood, the Pharisees and the scribes would go out and they would, on their spice gardens, they would count every tenth leaf and pull it off. And then that would, you know, eventually be collected and taken to the temple as, a, as an offering of, of the first fruits. So he says, you pay, so they were very diligent on the minutia of keeping the law. But he says, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. What does the law point to? Well, justice and mercy and faith. That's what the law really points to. He said, you've completely neglected those things. But no, what he says, so some have taken that verse, oh, we'll see this whole thing of tithing. Jesus said, don't even worry about it. That's not what he said. Read the last, last phrase. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. That's sensitive for me when I read that, by the way. It's like, my Lord said, these you ought to have done. He didn't say you don't have to do that anymore. He said, you need to do that. Being diligent with the minutia of obeying God, being precise and particular in your obedience, you need to do that. But don't neglect the weightier matters of the law. So as they say, for me, that's settled it. Every man's conscience stands before God. Look at this passage. It's Matthew 23, 23. It's a nice one. You only have to remember one number, 23, okay? Matthew, the tax collector, okay, who became a disciple. So Christ calls us to honor him. He calls us to serve him and to avoid the theft. In Proverbs chapter 30, we'll close with this. And this is a good prayer for us because here we see the prayer. Let me get to it so I can read it correctly. Proverbs chapter 30, we have the words of Agur, the son of Jake. His utterance were told. And in verse 7, here's what he says. Two things I request of you. This was his prayer. He's talking to God. And this is a good prayer for us. Two things I request of you. Deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Feed me with the food allotted to me. Give us this day our daily bread. He said, give me what I need, Lord. He says, lest I be full and deny you. Food, I don't need to be a glutton. I don't need to have or own everything. Lord, give me what I need. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. I don't need to be the richest man in town. I don't need to be the poorest. But he says, feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? You know, because my belly's full and I think, hey, I did all this. I worked for this. It's mine. You know, nobody helped me, etc. What a foolish thought, huh? Um, and then I end up denying God, saying, who is the Lord? He says, or lest I be poor and steal and profane, profane the name of my God. Lest in my poverty I start thinking that, well, I have a right maybe to, to violate God's law. He said, I don't want to get there because it's still sin. I don't want to be that way. So, Lord, give me what I need. Help me to recognize that I do have everything that I need. I said we we're going to end there, but I do want to go to uh, Hebrews 13. That's really where we need to end because that's the New Testament application. If you want to deal with theft in the way it needs to be dealt with, note what it says. 
at verse 5 of Hebrews 13. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God's promised to provide you what you need. Not what you want, but what you need. And so the idea of theft, if you have to steal something to get it, you don't need it. There's honest ways to get things. You know, um, if you labor and God prospers you and you have the means to uh, use your wealth, help others with it, but also to uh, acquire things, nothing wrong with that. Give God the glory. It's his anyway. But note what it says here. If you're in those difficult times, learn to live without covetousness. Be, be content. That's what he's saying. Be content with such things as you have. He who stole, let him steal no more, but rather let him labor with his hands, working that good thing. So they might have a, a means or the ability to help someone who's really in need. You know, because if you see somebody in need, you think, well, I know I used to be a thief. I don't want that brother to get to the point where he thinks he has to steal. Okay, so I'm going to help him. I'm going to keep. I want to keep him from sinning because when I was down, maybe didn't get a lot of help. You know, maybe I wasn't looking for it. Also, but here he says, "Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you.'" We have a song. It's what does it give me, Jesus? You know, if you have the Lord Jesus Christ, you have everything you need. Because he'll provide for you. And Paul said that to the Philippians. My God will provide all your needs. Not necessarily all your wants. Okay, get those under control. But all your needs. And so look around. You know the old saying, count your blessings, name them one by one. It's a good idea to do that sometimes. You know, think about all the things you have and all the abundance that God has given to you and the joy in your life. And give him all the praise and thanks. And if you can say today, oh, by God's grace, I'm not a thief. That's exactly the way to say it. By his grace. And if you are a thief, Steal no more. Get get to work, okay? Because there's people that need help, and God maybe put it on your heart to help them. Let's hope that happens. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray you'd be with us. Help us not to steal from you, whether in tithes and offerings or just giving you the glory due to your name. Forgive us our debts, Lord. We pray the debt of gratitude that we owe to you, Lord, and dedicating our lives to your service and loving you and loving others, Lord. You've given us everything, Lord. You give us every breath that we breathe, every beat of our hearts, Lord, all the functioning of our bodies, Lord, and our thinking, Lord. We thank you for the joy that you give us, Lord, with the, from the people that are in our lives and our brothers and sisters and uh, just from the, the abundance of good things that we have, Lord. So help us, we pray, Lord, to love you, to trust in you, and to recognize that, Lord, you give and sometimes you take away. And help us to say with Job, blessed be the name. Lord, we belong to you and all that we have is yours. So be glorified in our lives, we pray, and keep us this day. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.